We're going to be in the book of Acts this Sunday and for several Sundays ahead. Um, I shared with, I've shared with many of you sort of personally, and then during the annual meeting at the end of last year, I, I shared with the church members that 2017 ended up being a really difficult year for me as your pastor, um, not because of any of you um, specifically. Just there was a string of abnormally intense pastoral situations, uh, and they just sort of came back, 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 and it was really, really tough. Uh, I'm not complaining. God has brought about a lot of really, really good things through those, uh, but it, it was difficult. One of the good things, though, that God has brought about was a group of guys that I meet with weekly now, and we just pray together. Um, just anything that, that I'm uh, struggling with or needing guidance with as your pastor, we sort of pray through. Um, when I was going through the difficult time toward the end of last year, I started to just fill in our moderator and head deacon on what I was dealing with, Ron and Mark, uh, and they were wonderful to me, and they prayed through things with me. And um, through that process, we approached the deacons and asked them if they would pray through uh, just a, a team of, of about three guys that I can meet with weekly. Uh, we, we used the elder qualification lists in First Timothy and Titus to try to determine who might be the, the right ones for this task, and we landed on Jeff Walsh, and Ron Thomas, and Tom Brock. And so these three men meet with me and Mark as head deacon weekly, and we just pray together. And it's been a huge source of support for me. It's been wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, Kicking myself for not having pursued this 10 years ago when I first started, really. Um, But through through all this praying together, um, some trends emerged in my mind as I was beginning to write the annual report for our annual business meeting. And I shared those trends with you during the meeting as well. I'm not going to go into all those. There's some positive trends that I see as your pastor, and there's some, some concerning trends that I see as your pastor too. Some of the concerning ones, um, there's a lot of people missing. There's a, a lot of people who claim Doolin's Grove as their church and you know, have committed to us in membership, but they're just not really part of our fellowship. And that you know, concerns me. Those are people that we care about and we love and there's a bunch of different reasons for that, but that's a trend. Um, many of us are dealing with the um, accumulating complications of aging, either our own or our loved ones. Uh, many of us are beginning to pour a lot into serving our aging parents or grandparents, which is really good, and that's important ministry. But we see the, the effects of time passing on our church congregation. A lot of the pillars of our church life are getting older, and some are needing to kind of step aside into more of a mentoring kind of role rather than a bearing the, the weight of the, um, the life of the church, that service, all the service that happens sort of behind the scenes to make our church fellowship work. Um, we're going to need to think about that together. You know, I've been here 10 years now, starting my 10th year. I can't believe that. I don't know if that seems fast to you guys or if you guys feel like it feels like it's been 100 years since I started. But I think about how fast this decade has gone. Think about how fast it's gone for you. Another one's going to click by. It's going to be so fast. And so in, in 2028, what will things look like here? Who, who will be serving in key roles? It's just a factor, a trend we need to think about. Um, another one that comes with some concern is while many of us are getting more connected in the fellowship of the church and with believers than ever before, a lot of people are getting more disconnected 
than ever before. And there, there's a trend of sort of isolation and an individualism. And um, those are American values, privacy, autonomy, individualism. But it's really not a kingdom of God value. Um, and it's tough in America to be Christians and to really intertwine and weave our lives together the way we see scripturally. Uh, you have to really go against the tide. And um, a lot of us just aren't connected like that. Uh, when we're bearing heavy burdens, we don't reach out to one another to get together and pray through things. Um, when we see a brother and sister faltering, we, we aren't close enough in relationship to say anything to try to help them. Um, and that's not, I'm not saying that's universal. Many of us do have these good relationships. Many don't. Um, so that's something we need to think about. Another one, the last one I'll mention, we've seen people really soften and repent of sin. Uh, I've seen a lot of that. That's not something that we trumpet from here because it's not, it's, not the, it's not appropriate. But alongside that, there's also a trend of people who are hardening. And I've seen people really just embrace ongoing unrepentant sin uh, in, in a way that, that must also communicate a rejection of Jesus Christ. Um, we have no structure of like church discipline really in place, so, so we don't know what to do when this happens. We're, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a, a family kind of atmosphere. We don't know what to do. And we see one of us just saying, I know what the Bible says, but this is right for me, and I'm going to do this. You know, and that's not good. And so these aren't trends unique to us. This is what it is to be Christians together. There's struggles and there's things we need to think about. Um, preparing that report for the annual meeting, I always do a little uh, chart of the measurable aspects of our church life. And the only really measurable aspects are the ones that have numbers to them, like attendance. And I mean, you can just see a steady downtick in participation in our gatherings. That can mean a whole bunch of different things. I, I'm not God, so I can't say that means this or that. It could mean sort of a pruning um, as the number of those participating in our gatherings and the number of those who are actively participating in the genuine spiritual life of the church are getting closer together. Or it could just be a really clear sign of decline. Um, I, don't, I don't know the future. I don't know. It could be that he's some sort of clearing ground preparing us to really reach out to who is our genuine community, which is, is really growing and changing in demographic. Um, I, don't, I don't know. But again, this, this is just looking at the state of things in our church. And So as your pastor, I'm just thinking about this all the time. I know you guys, you're thinking about it sometimes, but you've got work, you've got family, you've got stuff going on. So I was I'm sharing this with our guys as we meet and we're praying, and it just seemed evident. Yeah, I, had, I have some ideas of things that perhaps changes we may need to consider. Um, some of them, perhaps big changes that would even require changes to our written constitution possibly in the future. Nothing I'm going to try to like ram through. But as we talked, we felt like, you know, really first step, let's just, as a church body, collectively, let's study the book of Acts together and just revisit this history of the church's beginnings and, and remember and revisit what it looks like to be Christians together. Let's sort of pretend that we got knocked on the head and we have amnesia and we don't remember all of our traditions and we don't remember all of our childhood histories and good old days and our plans and strategies. All we have is this. What kind of church will we come up with if this is all we had to go by? So this is sort of a big collective thought experiment that we're going to do beginning this year. 
And you are here on the ground floor. You guys are here on this frigid Sunday, and I'm really glad. We're going to study through the book of Acts. Now, I studied through the book of Romans from front to back, and it took over two years. Um, I don't want to, I don't, I don't know what, you never know what the Lord's going to do. But my, my thinking right now is that we won't go that meticulously through verse by verse. That's usually what I like to do, but I'm feeling inclined more as I'm praying about it to take more of a thematic approach. And what I mean by that is there are certain themes that rise to the surface as you look through the book of Acts that I think would be really important for us to consider. What, we, what I don't want you to think this is is that we're laying Acts out in front of us on a table like a set of blueprints. And we're going to get our pencil and we're going to say, okay, I see here, if we do these seven steps, we're going to have a thriving, vibrant church. All our younger generation is going to get engaged and take leadership and ownership of the church. All the non-Christians around us are going to come and be saved. That's not how God makes it work. He doesn't give us those lists that we like. He doesn't give us seven steps for this, eight steps for that. So don't think of this as like blueprints stretched in front of us and we're going to make a strategic plan. That's not what I want us to do, what I feel like the Lord is prompting me to lead us to do. Think of it instead like God gathering us up into his hands and shaping us. Did you ever work with modeling clay back in school in art class? I remember working with modeling clay. It seems like it was always during the winter like this, and it would be cold, and you get that block of clay, and it's so rigid and hard. But as you worked with it in your warm hands, it began to soften and be pliable. And so you'd use your thumbs and your fingers and you'd press it where you wanted it to be pressed in. You'd twist it where you wanted it to be twisted. You'd flatten it where you wanted it to be flattened. And eventually, through your working with it, it would take the form and the shape of what you wanted it to be. That's more how God works through his word. So I'm not sure we're going to come away with a a five-step action plan from Acts as a church. What I think we're going to come away with is God having shaped us in his hands. So I think at this point in my prayerful process with Acts and my studying that on Sundays, I'm just going to present to you sort of a shaping theme of the church as it began in Acts. And we'll see what the Lord does with us. I'm really excited about it. I think that um, it's it's really... um, invigorating for me to remember that we are not the architect of the church. We are the building. We are not the sculptor of the church. We're the clay. And that's probably way more of a relief to me than it is to you. But we don't have to be super brilliant to figure out, okay, what are the schemes and the programs and the plan? God will shape us into what he wants us to be if we'll do our part, which is to be pliable. In his hands. So that's what I'm asking of you. What I will do my very best to be prayerful about this, and we will look at these shaping themes and acts in the Sundays to come. And what I need you to do, and for me also, is let's be pliable. Let's be open. Let's be open to the possibility that he may have changes in store for us. It may be time for us to adapt in some ways. I'm excited about it. I'm not sure you look as excited as I feel about it, but you'll get there. You'll get there. So let's pray together before we jump in. This will be a longer than usual introduction because I just want to get you up to speed on why I'm doing this. And then we'll read some scripture together. 
But let's pray first. Father, help us to submit to your word. Not just understand it. Not just be inspired in some vague sense. But to be shaped forever. Forever altered as individuals and as a people, as a church. By your holy, inspired word. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first shaping theme I want to point out in the book of Acts is the theme of resurrection. Now that might be surprising given this, the lengthy introduction. You might have expected it to be something more about things that we're going to do. But we're going to evangelize or we're going to do this or that. But I think the first theme, the place to start, is the theme of resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is our backbone. Jesus' resurrection is our backbone as believers, as Christians, and as a church. If we forget his resurrection, if we just move beyond that, like it's, that's an event that happened and it was great, but it's irrelevant, if we move past it, we'll become these sort of religious jellyfish with no backbone and we're just squishy and we have vague religious beliefs but no firm orienting convictions. The resurrection is essential for us if we're going to be Christians together. So we'll start here. Now think about how unlikely it is that the church even still exists. Not Doolin's Grove specifically, but the church in general. How unlikely it is that it is even still here. What is it still doing here? If you've ever served on a church board or committee, you're probably the one shaking your head. How is it still here? We're so frail and fallible. We've messed things up so often. Prominent church leaders fall from grace. Churches split. We bicker. How does this still continue 2,000 years after Jesus? What are you doing here? It's cold. You could have slept in. You've got a busy work week ahead, but you came here. Why? Why do people do this every week? Why do people commit to be part of a church with a bunch of people? People are the worst. We aggravate each other. We fail each other. We hurt each other. We stress each other out. But people for 2,000 years have continually banded together in these local churches. Voluntarily. Nobody, you were not drafted. You could leave right now. People voluntarily join these churches and forego their privacy to one another. We don't do this real well, but that's a big part of being in the church together is we've got to really know each other. You need to know me well enough that if I start to let sin creep in, that you can point it out to me and try to correct me. We love our privacy about that stuff. Why would we voluntarily do this? Come together and sing songs? That's not something we just do because we love it. Football fans, y'all don't get together really and sing songs. You might have a school song or something that comes up, but you don't have like a whole hymn book. Come together and sing about it. Why is this still working? Why did it ever work to begin with? How did it even start? 
Because these believers, we're going to read about in Acts, they joined up with this, even though they could have possibly been killed for it. Now imagine if that was what was at stake for people, not just having to get out in the cold this morning, but they might be killed for worshiping openly Jesus Christ, and yet people did it and continue to do it under that same threat. Why? When Acts, we see the answer to why they did it, and it's very simple. Because they saw Jesus alive after they saw him killed. They saw him. And so all these disciples that went into hiding, Peter, who denied having ever known Jesus just because a girl threatened to expose him, they all come out willing to die for belief in Jesus Christ. And so the church was born. I want to just point out five quick considerations about the resurrection before we actually get into Acts this morning. Things you, you probably know, but it's good to think about them clearly again. Remember that the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection were put to paper early after his death. Within 10 to 15 years, when eyewitnesses, when all these people were still alive and could have denied it or refuted it. Let me read an example. It's actually not in Acts, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul writing, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. He wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. They're still around. Go ask them about it if you don't believe me. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So the eyewitness accounts, it's not some myth made up way later when nobody could have verified it. It was written and put down and spread around while all these people were still alive. The written accounts happened early. Another thing to consider the accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearances were really problematic, especially because the first people to have seen him were women. And in that culture, women's testimonies had no weight or value whatsoever. So if these were just clever con men trying to devise some fake religion, they would have never started like this. And there must have been enormous pressure on them to just get that bit about the women's testimony out of the story because it really made them look bad. But they didn't and they couldn't because that's what happened. They were just reporting what happened. Third thing to consider, the witness testimonies about Jesus' resurrection are twofold. One, the tomb was empty. And two, we saw Jesus alive. If it had only been one or the other, There would have been holes in the story. If they just said, we went to the tomb and it was empty. People would have just thought, well, somehow you disciples pulled it off and you stole his body so you could lie and try to pretend that he was alive. But it wasn't just an empty tomb. It was an empty tomb and a living Jesus Christ. If it had just been the living Jesus Christ, they could have said, that's pretty far-fetched. Let's go check the tomb. Oh, there's his body. 
clearly you're lying or you're deranged. But it was both. And therefore, nobody could refute it. There were plenty of people that would have wanted to refute it. But they couldn't. Because people saw him and they saw the empty tomb. The fourth thing to consider, these people were not primitive, ape-like morons. They would have been skeptical just like modern Americans would be skeptical. We tend to look back and think, oh, they lived way back then when they were just dumb. But they weren't. And they, nobody, the Jews and the non-Jews, none of them would have easily and quickly believed in an individual resurrection like this. It would have taken a lot of convincing. This wasn't part of the typical Jewish belief system. So for all these Jewish people to suddenly believe in this, they must have seen some pretty convincing evidence. And then the final one I'll point out, whether you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ or not, clearly something happened that made the church explode onto the scene against all odds. Something happened that initiated the church. You know, at first the burden of proof is on us, we Christians. It's a, it's a bizarre claim that Jesus Christ was killed and rose again. And so it makes sense that people would need to hear some proof. But pretty soon in investigation, the burden of proof has to begin to shift onto the people who deny that he was raised from the dead to explain if he didn't rise from the dead, then how did all this happen? Where did all this come from? All these people this boldly proclaiming that he was alive, how could you have orchestrated that if they had not seen him? One historian says that it is historically secure to say that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. It's historically secure. To quote from the new Star Wars movie, this, this resurrection is the spark that lit the fire of the church. And it continues to this day. Against all odds, it continues. So Luke... Inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote two books, Luke, the Gospel of Jesus, and Acts, and they were companion pieces. They most likely traveled around to churches together. They were meant to go together, sort of a part one and part two of the story. Luke was about Jesus, Jesus, what he did and spoke and taught. Acts is about the church that sprang up after his death, resurrection, and ascension. At the beginning of Luke, he explains why he's writing all this, and he's writing to a man named Theophilus, a believer, and he's writing so that he might have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. Certainty concerning the things he's been taught about Christ. And then he opens the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days, 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. So this was no momentary hallucination that somehow they all saw. It wasn't the light 
create an optical illusion where that almost looks like Jesus over there for a minute. 40 days, a 40-day conference seminar with Jesus Christ alive after his death. 40 days ago was November 28th from today. So that would have been like if Jesus had been killed around Thanksgiving and we all went into this pitch black time of mourning and grief and then he appeared and came among us and taught us about the kingdom of God for 40 days all through Advent and into the new year he was with us and then he ascended. This Theophilus will confirm and give you certainty concerning the things you've been taught. He was with them for 40 days. And as we continue to read in Acts, we see that the resurrection was central to these early followers' message of Christ. The apostles were not philosophers. They weren't entrepreneurial types who were just good at getting stuff started. They weren't gurus. They weren't brilliant men. They weren't showmen. Acts calls them witnesses. That's all they were. They were witnesses. Now, the technical idea behind that is that witnesses help establish facts objectively through verifiable observation. That's what they're called in verse 8 when Jesus is giving them What they're supposed to be doing now, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. You'll be confirming and explaining and detailing observable facts, things you've seen, things you've heard to people. That's all I'm asking you to do. You see it in the process of replacing Judas A little bit further down in chapter 1, after some time in prayer, Peter Peter stands up and says, you know, we need to replace Judas, one of the twelve that betrayed Jesus, and he's dead now. Let's find someone to replace him. And he's giving some criteria for the church to consider, for the people to consider. And he says in verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. I've told you before, when I was a high schooler, our church did an evangelism training course called Evangelism Explosion, EE, and we had booklets and we went through, it was like weekly classes and it was a technique where we'd go door to door and it was it gave you sort of a script to follow and how to try to evangelize people um it was good it was very challenging to me to do there were specific questions you had to ask and the hardest part for me was remembering those questions when I was just terrified of just the social anxiety of the whole thing but it was a technique it was a method and at least it got us out there trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people So what was the technique and method for the early apostles? They didn't have evangelism explosion courses back then. So what did they do? It was really simple. They just went around and said, listen to what we've seen and what we've heard about Jesus Christ. I don't think they had a memorized script or anything. I think they just said, listen to what we've heard and what we've seen. In Acts chapter 4, this message of a risen Jesus Christ is 
spreading, spreading, spreading. And many, many people are believing. And the Jewish leaders are getting really concerned about this. And so they, they're starting to arrest them and harass them and try to get them to stop. And they tell them to stop. And then in chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John answer them. And they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We've seen this stuff. We've heard this stuff. We know it to be true. We're not going to stop talking about it. I want to give you a quick sample of what it sounded like to hear Peter proclaiming Jesus Christ to people after his resurrection and his ascension and after the Holy Spirit came upon him. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, Peter has stood up after the Holy Spirit came upon them which we'll talk about in a future Sunday. But he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this is well reported. Everybody knows this stuff happened. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's pretty harsh words. But look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he goes on to quote something that David wrote in the Psalms that they would have been familiar with. And he elaborates on it beginning in verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. David didn't rise from the grave. He's still there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So we see how the resurrection was the backbone of the early church. It continues to be the backbone for us. And it was central to their message. Jesus was alive. Those five considerations I gave you earlier, a lot of that came from a book that Tim Keller wrote, The Reason for God. It's a really good book if you haven't read it. But he tells in there that he is a pastor up in New York where there's a lot of skeptical people, a lot of intellectuals. He encounters people who will say to him, I like this part of Jesus' teaching, but not really this I can go along with this part of Christian practice, but not really this, this, and this. And he says that he got to the point where his response to them was, it doesn't matter what you like or don't like. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that he arose from the dead? Because that decides everything else. If you don't believe he arose from the dead, then throw the whole thing out because all of it's nonsense. But if you do believe that he arose from the dead, then that changes everything. And you have to go all in for all of his teaching. And you have to submit to him completely because that means he genuinely is the Lord and the Savior. See, this whole thing is not about a philosophy or set of practices, but a person who lived in history and was killed and arose from the dead. 
To be Christians together, we have to start here in a a renewed confirmation of our faith in Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and our risen Lord. And we can strip away everything else, the good old day memories of what church used to be, and we wish it could be like that again. The, The marketplace mentality of church shopping for what fits best, this porridge is too hot, this porridge is too cold, this porridge is just right type of church mentality. Strip away all the preferences we bring with us. I wish we sang this kind of music. I wish the pew was this color. We strip all that away. This is the core. Jesus Christ lived perfectly, died on the cross in payment for our sins. Three days later, he arose from the grave, confirming it all. Now he has ascended and he is at the hand of the Father interceding for us. Do you believe it? Or do you not believe it? Without this shared conviction together, no amount of strategizing, no amount of elbow grease, no amount of creative marketing technique, no amount of programming will build the church. This is the only shared faith that can unite us and identify us, found us, and form us. Faith in the risen Jesus Christ. So to the missing, to those missing from fellowship here and and anywhere, we must simply say in light of Scripture, Jesus lives and he wants his followers to be following him together. That's how he designed it to work. And you really can't follow him apart from fellowship with other believers. So ultimately, rejection of the fellowship of Christ in the local church is a rejection of the living Jesus Christ himself. So whether it's here or there or wherever, Christians need to be in the fellowship of church. Not because I want it, but because Jesus commands it. And it doesn't have to be Doolin's Grove. If any of the missing are listening to this on podcast, it doesn't have to be Doolin's Grove. In fact, I always encourage people, pick the very nearest meeting place of Christians and go all in there. Because every church is imperfect in its own unique way. But if you meet with the people that live near you and work near you, you'll have a much better chance of being in genuine fellowship with them. You've got to be in fellowship somewhere if you're going to genuinely trust and follow Jesus Christ. To those dealing with the compounding complications of aging, we can say based on God's word that Jesus lives. And so no matter the hardships that come, we always have reason for hope. He defeated death itself, and death therefore has no sting for us. How strengthening is that? To the hardening, to those who are tempted to embrace ongoing unrepentant sin in their lives, we can say based on God's word, Jesus lives. And there's really only one choice, Repent, receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ and freedom from those sins and be welcomed into the fellowship of God's people or reject Jesus Christ. And to the church, to you and to me, we can say based on God's word, Jesus lives. And his resurrection is our backbone. Let us be shaped 
by shared belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. He's alive. Let's pray. Father, it is so tempting to let our vision be so clouded by our culture's naturalistic way of seeing things to the point that we can sort of bury and forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ as formative and foundational for what we are and what we're doing together. I pray that you would help us never get far from the gospel, the full orbed gospel, including Jesus' resurrection. Lord, please humble us and help us to feel afresh the excitement that they must have felt when they saw him. And let it give us the same boldness, the same clarity of convictions, the same shared life purpose of these early Christians. To be witnesses, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Amen.